we continue with our sermon series in this third week together in that series we keep looking at some of the realities of suburban life together and how they affect us all whether we live in the suburbs or not. Today we are pulling a piece of the story of the Exodus and we find ourselves in chapter 32 and Moses eight eight chapters before in chapter 24 has, has gone up to the top of the mountain and he's been there for a while and this is what happens. <clears throat> when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we, we don't know what's become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it into a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. So they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. Part of what we are doing, O oh God, in these weeks is to continue once again to get real about who we are, to be honest about that, and to allow those things that we want to be honest about to inform our lives that we might learn more about who you call us to be and who you are shaping us to become, the people that you see through your eyes. In this moment, together, bless us with the words that will guide us in that way and lead us in that hope. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Excuse <coughs> me. So for the past couple of Sundays, we have been pulling out some of the characteristics or realities of life in the suburbs and, and using those to talk about how we all are affected by them, whether we feel like we live in the suburbs or not, even though most all of us do. We started off, we talked about how when people move to the suburbs, they are often going there on the promise of a bigger house or a better school or a safer community or an easier life. And yet once we live there for a while, we come to discover that, well, suburbia isn't quite the paradise it promises to be. We also talked about how the suburban life has increased our being a commuter culture. That even if 
you don't commute to work, you do commute. You commute to where you shop or you commute to where you worship. You go to the newest suburb that offers the latest thing in the best possible way, which brings us to today's focus and something that suburban life has strongly contributed to, and that's consumption. Consumption. In his book, The Suburban Christian, Albert Sue observes something very keenly. He puts it this way. He says, if the urban areas are primarily industrial and the rural areas are primarily agricultural, then the suburban areas are primarily commercial. I think he's on to something. Another quote that is pulled out of the book Suburbia, exclamation mark, it's actually in our small group study for the week as well, is this one that says, simply put, the suburbs where houses have more than doubled in size and travel time has more than tripled since the 1950s, the suburbs are the best possible invention for mindless consumption. Ugh. I don't know that I like that one very much, although there's something true about it. What these quotes are getting at, of course, and what these authors are pointing to is that we are consumers. We live in a consumer-driven society, so whether we like it or not, we are consumers. We go all over, consume as we live together. In fact, we've managed to successfully prepackage our world and our lives. Almost every experience that we have these days has been painstakingly designed to try to meet our needs and expectations and even capture our deepest wants before we even realize that we want them. And the most clear place to see this happen, this pre-packaging, is when a suburb begins. Think about it. As soon as a housing development goes up on the edge of town before it even finishes, or you know what's going to come next. You know what's coming eventually. You kind of lament it even at some level and hope that something unique might pop up. But no, we know it's going to be a Target or a Walmart, a TJ Maxx or a Kohl's, a PetSmart or a Petco, and at least one, if not five, ER clinics. <laughs> we know. We have successfully managed to prepackage our lives and our world. In the mid-1990s, my coworkers and I, as we traveled the country to suburb, to suburb, to suburb, opening new restaurants, we used to joke about this very thing. It was the running joke. Before we'd even get on the plane and realize where we were going, it didn't matter. One of us would pop up and say, hey, where y'all want to eat this time? Joe's Crab Shack, Carabas? Where? And we'd laugh because we knew that those are the places that would already be there when we arrived. And yet at the same time, I could sense a tone of sadness in our conversation because deep down we also realized that we were part of it, part of the loss of unique communal identity. We've become 
consumers. The harsh reality of being consumers is to understand and know that if we allow it, our consumption has the power to define us more than our faith. That what we buy actually has the power to overshadow who we are. A greater influence if we allow it. The search and the quest for the next new thing at the cheapest price has become our golden calf. We can get lost in it. We can forget who we are. We're not the first ones, of course, to run across a a challenge of identity or a crisis of identity or a question of identity. We're not the first ones to become confused easily by the things we create for ourselves. We're not the first ones to hit that place in life. The story we just read, the Israelites faced the very same thing. As the story goes, they escaped the city that was enslaving them and they headed out for the wilderness in search of the promised land. Sound familiar? Chapters before that, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to talk with God about who these people are and who they're going to be, and he's been gone a long time. And before he left, back in chapter 24, he says to the people, he says, okay, y'all be good. Don't, you know, remember who you are. He reads, he reads God's word to them, and he says to them, remember who you are. And they say, what do they say to Moses? They say, we're good. We're, it's all right. We'll be fine. You go. We'll be good. Time goes by, and of course, it gets harder and harder. They become impatient and antsy, and their lives become scattered and empty. And they go to Aaron, and they say, we need something. We need something to focus on. Something to fill the emptiness in here. We need something that we can see and feel and, and touch. We need something. And slowly but surely, they began to substitute the intangible, invisible, personal, active God for a tangible impersonal object. They began to try and put God in a package to be sold to the highest bidder. They forgot who they were. They became consumers. Last week we talked about how what happens out here has, a, has an influence on who we are in here. As we put it, we said, if your life is scattered and empty out here, chances are high that your life may also be scattered and empty in here. And so I'm here to remind us today that the converse is also potentially true, that if your life is centered in here, then your life can feel centered out here. But it's much more than a feeling who you are in here 
helps define and direct and shape who you are and what you do out here, right down to how you treat and view other people, regardless of where they come from or who they are, right down to what you buy, who you are in here can help define how you are out here. The problem, of course, is that we live in a world that constantly bombards us with brand names and new marketing and the next thing under the sun. And all of them are trying to convince you that you should be this way and that you should do this thing. Our world bombards us with it. The problem is that, that if we get really honest, we are to realize that our quest for the next new thing at the cheapest, cheapest price has become our golden calf. What do we do about it? How do we manage it? Well, the first thing we can do is to do the same thing that Moses does with the Israelites in the story. What happens after he comes down from the mountain finally, if you know the story, is he gets all upset with him, of course, for going off track. Both Moses and God are deeply disturbed by what's been going on, and so it's not that they're happy about it. But then the very, very interesting thing happens. Moses turns right back around and marches right up to the top of the mountain, and in the conversation between Moses and God that unfolds there, we begin to see and understand the kind of God we are dealing with here, that this is a God not of harshness and punishment, but a God of mercy and forgiveness, a God of second chances. Over time throughout the Old Testament, we see this growing understanding of a, of a God of mercy and forgiveness that the New Testament picks up on and takes a step further and says not only is God that, but God also sympathizes with us in our weakness because God became one of us in Jesus Christ. Paul takes that very same thing and keeps going with it. He says, we are continually transformed by the grace of God, not a harsh God or a punitive God. This is a God of mercy and forgiveness, a God of second chances. So that's one thing we can do is realize that very thing. The next thing we can do is to do what we're doing right now, right in this very space, right at this very moment, to continue to grow in our understanding of how being a person of faith in here informs who we are and what we do out here. To keep up that practice together. Learning a growing awareness of how who we are in here informs and guides what we do and who we are out here. Right down to what we buy. As Albert Sue puts it, it's an act of Christian formation to allow ourselves to be formed by Christian values rather than consumeristic ones. 
to not just mindlessly go out into the world and consume whatever we need whenever we need it, regardless of ever asking or even beside the point of asking the question, do we need it, or even where did this come from and how did it get here? To grow in that awareness together and then to practice acting upon it out in the world. A couple of years, well, a number of years ago, actually, my wife and I had a conversation, and I feel comfortable talking about my wife today because she's still in Sherman serving as the interim pastor up there. But a few years back, we had a conversation, and it was one of those conversations where I was actually right. This is, this is rare, which is why I remember this. It's what happens when you marry someone much smarter than you are. But we were going down the highway in Oklahoma, and, and we pulled up behind a chicken truck, you know, just stuffed to the gills with chickens, little eyes poking out of little holes, and, you know, and my wife is an animal lover. She just, she is an animal lover, and she does not like to see when she thinks animals are suffering. It's regardless of the reason of whether they feel it or it's not about that. She just does. It's just who she is. She doesn't. And so we pull up behind this chicken truck and I get the whole spiel, right? I can't believe they treat chickens that way. Why do they do? Do you know what they do? I think you've told me, dear, a couple of times. They stuff them in these cages where there's no room. They never get to move. They never, ever get, barely have enough room to breathe, and they don't let them run around ever. And they just, they just keep them in these cages to make eggs. And I said, well, you're the only one you have to blame for that. This was not the right thing to say that very moment. Yet I said it. What are you talking about? I said, well, you don't have to buy the cheapest eggs on the rack. And there's only one way to get eggs that cheap, and that's to stuff chickens in the tightest space possible and get the most out of them. That's, that's how it works. You, if it's bothering you that bad, you actually have the power to seek out local chicken farmers. You can go so far as to find a chicken farmer that, you know, massages the little chicken's shoulders and gives them little hammocks with umbrella drinks and you can it's it's just going to cost a lot more well something within my wife clicked that day to where she was no longer willing to allow what was going on out here to define who she is in here. Something in here changed enough to change what she does out here. So, guess what kind of eggs we now buy? Now, this isn't a save the chicken rally or anything like that. I mean, you may not care for chickens one way or the other. I might be with you. It's not a, what we're getting at what is fundamentally important is to realize that the spiritual life is born and grows in your heart. It's born and grows in your heart. Who are you in here? 
when you live in a world that constantly bombards us with image after image after image and brand after brand after brand trying to tell you who you should be, the question is this, are you going to let them? Are you going to allow what happens out here to tell you who you are in here or the other way around? Are you going to open up your heart to the God of mercy and forgiveness? Or the golden calf 